1: It is the movie that has brought adult audiences back during the pandemic. We're talking about MGM and United Artists releasing's House of Gucci. And today we have with us screenwriter Roberto Bentivegna to tell us more about it on Crew Call. Tell me about getting in the door with Ridley. Did did his um, production company read The Eel? And that's, what, and that's what brought you in. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I wrote a script, The Heel, uh,
2: a while ago, like eight years ago. And it was on a thing called The Blacklist. Yes. And I was working with a producer named Kevin Walsh, um, who was helping me put that movie together. And we never got the movie made, by the way. It's still in that process. Uh, but we had Sam Rockwell attached for many years. And anyway, so when Kevin Walsh became president at Scott Free, uh, you know, Kevin's been such an amazing champion of my work pretty much from, from the moment I met him. And he just, you know, he said to Ridley, he was like, I've got this writer, he wrote this thing, here it is, read it. And Ridley read it and really loved it. And then brought me in to meet with Janina, his wife, who's also mm-hmm. the producer of Gucci. And, uh, you know, they've been trying for like 20 years, something like that. And they had a revolving door of, of writers that were were much more Prestigious and expensive than me, and um, they sort of threw it at me like a like a bone. <laughs> you know, they were like, I, I honestly think that they were kind of at the end of the road. Um, they didn't give me any guidelines. They didn't say like this is what we think it should be. It was a really kind of like uh, 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 Ave Maria, I think, um, and it just it clicked. You know, it clicked because I I grew up in Milan and. My mother's a fashion designer. Ridley, um, obviously, I adore Ridley's films, and I thought in the back of my mind maybe he's going to like it. I didn't think he's going to direct it, um, but it felt very freeing to have had all those other writers come before me because I knew I had nothing to lose. You know, I knew I could just give it, a, give it everything I had.
1: What couldn't they crack in the story? Would you, what do you? Well, some the- from
2: what I, yeah, from what I know, because I haven't read. all the scripts but I think the most the the main thing was a lack of humor uh, a lack of specificity um, a feeling of sort of biopickiness, you know when it's like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and uh, to me it was always going to be a big almost like Scarface you know it was always going to have this sort of colorful bigger than bigger than life, heightened quality. Like, you know, you're watching a movie, definitely not some sort of, uh, you know, neo-realist drama. Um, and uh, yeah, that's why it's kind of interesting reading re- reviews and responses that some people think the humor is a- unintentional. Like, it's supposed to be fucking funny.
1: You know what? <laughs> yeah, re- I was going to say, reviewers have the worst sense of humor. Now watch. Yes. We'll, uh, I'll get a thousand comments as to why (laughs) that I'm attacking critics now. Yeah. Uh, I saw, I'm going to, I'm going to gush. I saw this movie at the first screening when they showed it at the Academy Museum. And uh, it is one of my favorite films of the year. It is amazing. Oh, Thank you so much. Uh, It, even though it's over two hours, it doesn't feel like it. It goes at such a fast pace and love the characters like you said the whole heightened you know they're like people we haven't met before and they're they're so they're so over the top which makes it intriguing the other thing i was going to say was you brought up in that q a and this is the film that i was thinking of throughout the godfather yeah you tell me about because that's such a storied film such a classic film such a film that when we look back at it we would we always say oh the they would never make this today. Right. Tell me about the goalposts that, your inspirations from that film and because it's got a godfather feeling. Yes, because it's about Italian family. And, and and. but tell me about that. Well, I
2: think the main thing was the fact that every time I, I read uh, interviews with Coppola about the godfather, he always said it wasn't about the mafia, it was about a family. And, um, And that really struck a a nerve because in a way, this is not about fashion. It's about a family. And it happens to be a family that's in fashion. But I didn't want it to feel like some sort of, uh, you know, commercial for Gucci or uh, something super, super, like, you know, Michael Bay does Gucci. Like, you know. Uh, Although I did think of the fashion shows as set pieces in an action movie. I was like, okay, I'm going to have the Versace show. I'm going to have the Tom Ford show. Um, The Paolo Gucci, obviously, is kind of a, A mockery show, but but really the fashion shows like the three shows were kind of um, the equivalent of explosions in an action movie, you know, of like a helicopter attack. Um, But yeah, the main thing was um, uh, was just to kind of create a sense of intimacy, uh, kind of like in The Godfather. The fact that even though you have this huge canvas and you're dealing with all these massive themes, that at the end of the day, it's just people and it's betrayals and it's you know jealousies and double crossings and uh, loves and and loves that go wrong and, uh, and really kind of creating a sense of, uh, of relatability to the whole thing, which, uh, yeah.
1: My editor, uh, Mike Fleming also loves this movie and he, he speaks about Paolo Gucci as the Fredo mm-hmm. of it all. Was, yeah. was Paolo really like Fredo in real life?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, that's why you have to take liberty and kind of take take the seed of the real person and let it grow into your creative invention. But I think, I always thought of him as a little bit of a freighter for sure. Um, you know, he definitely had a, a a complex and his father was so suave. And so you, you can smell the cologne of Aldo when you look at a picture of him. It's that kind of person, you know. He was so... He was well, first of all, he loved ladies. He was quite well known around town um, for for being quite frivolous with the ladies. And I think Paolo just was overwhelmed by him, you know and uh, and, that, and again, we're talking about relatability. I think if you took that relationship outside of a Gucci context, you could put it anywhere and it would still hit a nerve. I think um, I know kids, I know sons who feel overwhelmed by their fathers and are in the shadow of their very successful, very boisterous father. And, um, and so for me, that was kind of a really, really touching and, and really fun relationship to explore. And, and of course, having Al Pacino in the movie, how can you not think of Fredo? You know, that scene when he hugs him and says, you're an idiot, but you're my idiot. You know, <laughs> I, thought of, uh, I thought of Fredo when he kisses Fredo in the mouth. I think did it's you, the mouth, right? Yeah. Did you
1: write that line before? Or did you write that on set? No, I, I wrote that line before.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The only line that I wrote on there was a couple of lines I wrote on set. Um, The one that I really liked the most was when when uh, Paolo says to Maurizio, "I can finally soar like a pigeon," (laughs) because he has (laughs) he has this weird weird pigeon fetish, and uh, (laughs) I just love I love and he says it so earnestly too, like like he sees the pigeon as this sort of you know, bold eagle. Uh, Finally, I can be free.
1: So, um, so I remember Gaga saying, no, 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 no. I didn't want to meet Patrizia because Patrizia is still alive because I wanted, basically, she didn't want anything to temper with her preparation or be overly favorable. You know, she wanted to play her, I think, in an unbiased way. Yeah. Given that, Patricia's still alive, you've got the book. Did you do a deep dive? Like, did you did you read the book front, you know, front to back? Like, how did you you had yes, you had previous drafts. What are you taking? What are you not taking? How do you how do you grow and make this on your own?
2: Well, I didn't look at the previous drafts because I knew that they failed. Right. So I I, I didn't want to build on on rubble, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like it was a it was a doomed it would have been a doomed attempt uh, But I think the most important thing was just uh, using Sarah's book as uh, as a great foundation just in terms of, of understanding the story, understanding the beats the bi- the biographical notes and her story goes from you know 1890 when Guccio was born basically to 1998 I think, when Patrizia was was found guilty, so you know it really does go through the whole story, and um, and I had to be quite selective about what to focus on. But really, for me, it was it was the book, and it was also diving into articles written by the Italian press at the time of these events happening. And I'm talking not just the murder, but but even the the squabbles between the the family members and the tax evasion, and you know Aldo going to prison and Paolo starting his new line. All of that stuff just you know, going back to the to the roots of it and seeing what people were saying about them at the time, I thought that was really interesting because obviously hindsight is, uh, you know, is a different thing. But um, seeing how they were viewed by the Italian press and, and the Italian community at the time was very, um, very eye-opening. And then, of course, putting it all away and just kind of letting the, you know, letting the, the characters hopefully come to life and, and speak to me.
1: you know, these, these tales about these fashion houses, not all of them, some of them, it's always a rise and fall. Like Halston is mm. another one of, of excess, total excess and an implosion. Um, Pierre Cardin, more of a tale of selling out, but yet he sold out, but, uh, 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 but somehow he was able to keep something intact toward the end of his life. Uh, but it's, it's just interesting. I guess it's just, that's commercial art, the, the risk and like, what's your take on just, it, 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 it's just amazing. They were left in something so glamorous and glorious, how they just didn't change with the times. I mean, fashion, you've always got to change. You've always got to, I've heard stories, my, my niece worked on a, uh, a fashion show with Tom Ford. She did lighting. He came in. He ripped up everything the night before, and completely 180, 180 the the design of it all. Amazing. Um, uh, I'm just curious, like what cat? Why didn't? Why didn't? Why didn't they listen to Paolo sometimes?
2: Yeah. Well, pa- the irony about Paolo, by the way, is that his designs look very much like what Gucci's doing today uh-huh so he was quite the the pioneer um but i think i don't know perhaps it's the fact that fashion more than anything is uh is visible and if you can't keep up with the trends you are really left in the dust and and like mu- music has a sort of a retro vintage cool factor um and of course you know fashion does as well but but at the same time, if, if, some, if something comes across as as chic, as not so chic, um, it's very blatant. It's it's very much in your face. Um, so it's just maybe it's that it's, it's the fact that they couldn't quite keep up with the times that they couldn't reinvent themselves. Um, and that's the genius of Gucci right now is that they they have been able to keep a foot in the past. Uh, they still have the The moccasins, they still have the handbags, but then they also have things that are so outlandish and so garish and so big and and colorful uh, that are being embraced by, you know, 20 year old musicians and and uh, this whole new generation of people. So they've really kind of cracked that code of uh, appealing to everybody.
1: Now, um, in your preparation for this, was there ever talk of going to meet with Patrizia? Or is she of sound mind? Or would that have tainted the, the creative process, much like Gaga spoke of for her?
2: Yeah, I never really thought about meeting Patrizia. Um, I would meet her now. You know. I think now that the movie's done, yeah, sure, I'd love to. But I think for, for, for practical purposes, it would, uh, it would not have been helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm because um, just watching her in interviews, well, first of all, there's the legal issues. And, uh, Aha. I, I, yeah, mm. I just don't know legally if um, she would have been able to give me any information that was not in the book, or she might've exposed herself to even more legal issues if she suddenly admitted to something that was not uh, prosecuted. Understood. <laughs> and then I would, be, I would be seen as a, as a co-conspirator in another mental <laughs> crime. Uh, but the main thing is really, and I can understand this. I mean, everybody wants to be the, the, the good guy in their own movie. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine her suddenly opening her heart up and saying, I did what I did, and this is why. And, and I'm, a, you know, it requires an, an amount of self awareness and uh, maybe even self deprecation that, from what I've seen, is not quite apparent with Patrizia. And um, at least that's the impression that I get from watching her in, in interviews and, and reading her interviews.
1: Now, there's two daughters. One is portrayed in the film. Mm-hmm. How are the daughters to this day? Are they okay?
2: Yeah, I think it's a very difficult thing when your husband well, sorry, when your father is murdered yeah. by your mother and your mother survives but is deeply damaged and spends you know, twenty years in prison. And then of course, the irony of it is that uh, when Patrizia was uh, released from prison, mm-hmm. she was uh, entitled to Maurizio's inheritance. Yes, uh, not I'm not sh- sure exactly how much, but she was definitely entitled to the house in St. Moritz and to the yacht, the Creole. Um, and so the daughters are in a fight right now, a legal fight with her over the inheritance. So wow. the story keeps going on. And um, you know, un- unfortunately, it's one of those classic uh, money doesn't buy happiness warning tales. And uh, I think they're all pretty miserable. I can't imagine this being fun for them, seeing the movie coming out. But at the same time, it's a work of fiction and it should be treated as such.
1: Is there an entire separate story alone in her capture? I I I don't know, I'm not privy to details, but I've heard her cat Patricia's capture is a story in and of itself.
2: Yeah, that's you're absolutely right. Um, the the capture, the crazy thing is that after she murdered Maurizio or had him murdered, uh, there was a two-year gap. A lot of people think that she had him killed, and then you know, one week later the Cops showed up and arrested her, but there was a two-year gap, which is actually a pretty long time. And uh, and she was living a normal life, you know. She obviously would uh, uh, would pretend that she didn't know anything about it. And um, at one point, I think there was there was a rumor that it might have been some sort of mafia hit, or there was a lot of, of various theories as to who who could have been behind the murder. But I think that the thing that got her was that um, was that somebody who knew the driver uh, who was in prison spoke to somebody else, saying, "I know who killed Maurizio Gucci." So the driver who um, the driver who went to the to the office to murder Maurizio spilled the beans with somebody who then spilled the beans to somebody else. So it was one of those classic, you know, uh, things of, of the the bird. Speaking too much, and um, but,
1: was she? Was, but was she keeping a great cover in Italy? Like, was it like, where is Patrizia? Nobody knows, and I don't know. She's in Assisi. <laughs> she was
2: living a very normal life. That's the crazy thing. Is it's, it's yeah. now in hindsight, when you look at the photos of her dressed in black at the funeral, and uh, and all of that stuff, you think, how could they not know that it was her? Also, okay. because also she, because she went public on television talking about how she wanted him dead and she would go around Milan asking people who could help her kill him. Uh, so it's crazy. I mean, uh, it, now it seems absurd, but for two years people just either didn't want to believe it or, or she was just very clever at, at kind of giving off mixed uh, signals about it, you know.
1: Now, Rodolfo uh, makes a ding Jeremy Irons' character and says that she's of mafia. Is that was that true, or was her dad just a hardworking truck? He just was a hardworking guy that had a, a great truck driving business.
2: That that was actually Jeremy. That was an ad lib by Jeremy. And yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was Ridley actually that for some reason had this idea that that maybe you know because he's from the north of Italy, he's a trucker. Um, that maybe there was like a poss- a possibility that he might be connected to to the mob but really it was just a way of saying she's scum mm-hmm. it was a way of saying you know she's from a different class um you know because the gucci the Guccis, thought of themselves as a royal family mm-hmm. and uh and I, I in the script i point out to the irony of it being you know that they're basically not their uh their shoe their um that the, the guccio was a guy carrying uh, luggage for people in london and um, and that's why he got the idea of starting a, a luggage company. but uh, Aldo has that whole monologue about you know, there's Tuscan aristocracy, and it's all bullshit, you know. Um, so yeah, I was kind of playing on that on that irony.:
1: So you write a script for Ridley. How does Ridley talk about Ridley as a collaborator? He was talking about how... He's a visceral guy. He sees things visually. How does that, like what kind of notes is he giving you? And talk about, talk about working with him. And then coming away, I'm sorry, just adding to this, I loved all the money in the world. I really did. This feels like it's just that much more of a strong man of a film. And I'm just yeah. curious. And it has a similar caper, you know, similar kind of thriller, whodunit feel to it. Mm -hmm. Was there any takeaways from that that for him of what he wanted to avoid or embrace in this? And 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 just yeah, if you could talk about working with him.
2: Sure. Yeah. So um, the main thing is really when I wrote the script, Ridley was not involved. Uh, Mm -hmm. I wrote it. I wrote it for for his company. I wrote it for Janina um like i said earlier i thought maybe he would read it um there there was a part of me either either consciously or subconsciously that thought maybe if he did direct it that i would want to really kind of infuse it with some visual cues and some uh even lighting descriptions and things like that just to give it to give it sort of a very visual uh feel because obviously if you know that ridley scott's directing your film you have you know this visual genius uh, t- turning your pages into images and and I just wanted to give him stuff to work with you know and um, and so the script you know I made I made sure that it was as visual as, as I could um, and then after that really when I when I sent it to him and he read it we started working together in summer of two years ago and we just did a lot of uh, a lot of, of readings and uh, you know, as you go through the casting process, different actors come in and out, and sometimes you have to write new scenes for them. Sometimes you rethink things. Um, sometimes you have Al Pacino and Jeremy Irons, and you realize, oh, shit, like, we need a scene with both of them together because it would be a miss, missed opportunity. And and so, for example, that scene in the movie was not in the original draft. Um, Were they me? Something... Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. For, yeah. yeah, so I wrote that for them, knowing that they would be co-starring together. Um, And on a logistical level, I was in Colombia during COVID. I got stuck in Colombia after going there for a wedding. And Ridley was in France in his his vineyard. And so we were working remotely for, you know, nine months, something like that. And, uh, you know, doing a lot of Zooms. And then when Adam signed on, there was quite a lot of work that we did with him to really kind of of, to mold Maurizio uh, in a way that he felt happy with. So, yeah, it, it was a remote uh, collaboration. And uh, and then I flew to, to Rome directly from Bogota. And it was amazing to see the movie come to life because I had been in this bubble for a year in Colombia during COVID. And uh, to walk around the hotel, the production offices, and see all these things happening out of nowhere because I, I hadn't been around, you know. So to go from one <laughs> extreme to the next uh, was uh, was. Pretty mind blowing, actually. Are you London based? I'm, uh, I'm all over the place. I'm, I was living in Mexico City for a couple of months and, uh, and now I'm here in LA doing, doing press. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. I have to figure out where I wanna live.
1: The, um, can you tell us about what's next for you? Is it, is it eel or is it, is it something else? Yeah. I,
2: well, it's definitely, I'd definitely love for the eel to, to get moving. Um, I wrote that to direct and uh, that's the the next step I think for me is to write something that I can direct. So hopefully the eel, maybe something else. Um, and then I wrote a movie for Amazon uh, that's uh, based on a, on a short story by Joe Nesbo called uh, the movie's called killer heat. And the short story is called the jealousy man. And I wrote it for, um, uh, a director, a wonderful director named William Oldroyd who did Lady Macbeth who's now making a movie with Anne Hathaway and uh, and uh, an actress whose name I can't remember. But anyway, yeah, so we're shooting that in Greece next summer and uh, it has twins in it. It's sort of like a Patricia Highsmith crime thriller uh, and I'll just say that it has twins in it and that one actor is going to play both twins which I always love in movies. <laughs>
1: tell Tell us about breaking into screenwriting. Um, what what advice can, uh, can you offer young writers? Is it the standard, you know, have three spec scripts, original spec scripts at your hand, like breaking into screenwriting today at a time when, you know, I mean, yes, you could argue there's more opportunities with streaming and whatnot. However, it's a whole different game from The early 90s, the days of the million dollar screenplay, you know, when million dollar screenplays were being sold and things were high concept action thrillers. Can you talk about, can you just talk about the the current state for young writers?
2: Yeah, well, I have to be honest, I don't really follow these these, um, thought processes, you know, like, uh, Mm -hmm. do I write a a spec? Do I follow what sold last week? Uh, All of that stuff. I don't know, maybe I'm a bit lazy, but I just never really, um, I never thought of that. Um, I think for me, you know, I went to Columbia University for grad school. I graduated in 2010. So it's been a full 10 years plus to get my first movie produced. And, uh, you know, I'm 39. Um, I'm glad that it's this. I'm glad that it's a a film of this level and of this magnitude. Um, It's a classic tale of just keeping going, because honestly, one movie is all it takes, one script. And um, I I had very positive signs along the way. You know, I mean, even something as, you know, The Blacklist obviously was a big thing for me and um, selling the script to Film Nation and I worked with Lynn Ramsey on something. And, you know, so there was never any question that I was sort of on the right track, but it really just took one thing and and it takes someone like Ridley to unlock the, the, the gates because you couldn't get this movie made with anybody else. I mean, maybe with two or three other directors, but it's, the list is so small. Um,
1: so, great, you know. Great mentors like Walsh.
2: And great mentors like Kevin, totally. And yeah. I was very lucky Be- that Kevin, Kevin believed in me from, from the beginning.
1: Because sometimes with young writers, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a situation where you're working on something, you crack something, and then some other big name writer comes in, takes the credit, you're pushed to a story by, and then it's like, that's a whole other uphill battle. So you've broken, the writer's broken through, but you're, you know, yeah, 10, you know, almost 10 steps behind on your own idea.
2: Yeah, no, and in this case, I, I, I've been very fortunate that, um uh they've really welcomed me into this this family essentially and I've been able to be on set for the whole film and during press you know Ridley always sort of makes a point to say that that I'm the writer of the movie in spite of the other the other credited writer you know so it's it's a very um flattering thing and uh but yeah I think it really took a while just because um you never know which one's the right one. You never know which one's the one that's going to click. And um, I think it's just important to to keep going and to keep writing. And and, and obviously, it's just one project away. You know, it's one script away. And um, uh, that, at least that's how I felt with me.
1: Roberto, mille grazie, mille baci, iguri, and House of Gucci is in theaters right now.
2: Grazie mille Antonio. Ciao. Ciao. Ciao.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.